Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 38, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name, again, is Rick, and I'm author of The God Who Fights For You, a new book. just came out a few months ago. You can find that on Amazon. But also, last year, Spiritual Grit and its two companion devotions, one for adults, one for teenagers. Uh, if you... Um, uh, if you are in a season of life that feels really challenging to you, or you feel empty and dry inside or spread thin, this is the book for you. Um, what you're feeling is a lack of strength um, flowing through your life. And strength comes from the well. <laughs> and Jesus promised us that. And so spiritual grid is about where do we get the strength that we need. And, or you might know someone in your life, a friend, an adult friend, or, or a teenager who could really use this journey right now of reintroducing them to the place where you get strength. That's spiritual grit. And I'm also editor of the Jesus Centered Bible, which we talk about a lot on this podcast. It's a unique Bible in that we've added a host of special features so that no matter where you're reading the Bible, you're falling more deeply in love with Jesus and you're seeing how he, he is the common thread through the whole story. And then also the Jesus Centered Life from which this podcast got its life and in this series, we're calling the Beeline Practices. It comes directly out of the Jesus-Centered Life. About the last two-thirds of the book is this collection of, they're not really um, how-tos or tips or anything like that. They're simply ways of living your life that draw you naturally into closer and closer orbit around Jesus. And that's what the Beeline Practices are. We'll get into that in just a second. But after a little bit of a hiatus, because she was so dang busy, the Beckinator is back, and her name, for those of you who are new to the podcast, her real name is Becky Harrington, but the name that Trinity gives her <laughs> is the Beckinator, and she's the Beckinator because she gets things done. So hi, Becky. Nice to have hi. you back. Hi. You got to tell everybody, what were you busy with, just so they know why you disappeared for three weeks? Well, I gave myself a birthday present, and that birthday present is that I launched something that I've been wanting to do for a long time called BH Marketing School, and it's um, a new place where people can join a membership for online learning. It's great for small businesses that don't have the budget to invest in a retainer situation with a marketer or that can't afford to hire a marketing manager. It's great for those marketing coordinators who are working in companies and really want to move up to the next level, but maybe aren't getting um, the mentorship or the mentorship isn't available to them. Um, it's a place where you can get tons of training on Facebook advertising, podcasting, email marketing, benefit copy, you name it. So we're starting book club on Monday. So I'm super excited about that. And we kicked it off with a four day marketing boot camp that was free. It was an hour a night for four nights. And I haven't slept really in three weeks. So after tomorrow, I'm actually going to take a couple of days of not working and I'm very much looking forward to it. She's in the middle of building an empire is the short answer to that. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so we'll put a link to uh, Becky, what, everything you just heard that Becky was talking about, we'll put a link to that on our podcast page. If you want to learn more about it, you can check that out again to access these episodes. You just go to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. And this episode is season four, episode 38. You can also find a way to join the pigs on that page. The pigs is a private Facebook group that you can ask to be invited into. It's for people who listen to this podcast and want to live a life that closely orbits around Jesus and want to be part of a loving, encouraging, creative, and challenging community of others who are doing the same thing. So there'll be a link to how to get invited into that group also on our podcast page. But the series is called The Beeline Practices. That word beeline comes from the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Victorian era preacher who was at one time the most famous person in the world. And his, his sort of strategic way of living his life and also delivering messages every week as a pastor was to follow the beeline to Jesus. And what he meant by that is no matter where you start topically or in the Bible, 
you can always find your way to Jesus because he's the, he's the metropolis that all of the side roads in your world lead to. So Spurgeon called that beelining to Jesus. And these beeline practices in the Jesus-centered life are what I like to, I like to always frame them as like playground equipment at the playground. You might have 10 or 12 different apparatus at the playground you could play on if you wanted to. So just go play on the ones you like. And that's what these beeline practices are. They're, they're ways to play with Jesus that draw you closer into his orbit. So this week, the beeline practice we're going to focus on is called asking the Oprah question. Asking the Oprah question. And in the book, I describe this simple practice of asking the Oprah question as the single most important thing I've ever done to get access to Jesus' heart in a more intimate way. It is the thing that has unlocked his heart more than anything else for me. And so Oprah's question is actually, I did some research even today and I discovered it didn't originate with Oprah. It, you'll find out in just a second who first asked that question that upended her life and then she started using it and eventually wrote a whole book of all of her interviews of people. The question is, what's one thing you know for sure? What's one thing you know for sure? So at the end of every one of her shows and at the end of her magazine, Oprah always asked that question of a celebrity. And it's a fascinating, I think it's the best interview question I've ever heard. And I've been a journalist for 35 years and I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people. And that is the single most uh, effective interview question I've ever heard. What's one thing you know for sure? So the way I've morphed this question in the Jesus-centered life is, what's one thing you know for sure about Jesus? And sometimes I'll add on to that based only on this passage. So if you're in a, if you're in a Bible reading or Bible study environment, um, I'll say, what's one thing you know for sure about Jesus based only on these three verses? Um, and use the question like that. But it's also a question that can infiltrate into every aspect of our life. But before we get too deep into this, I want us to listen to this uh, short snippet of an interview that Oprah did on Entertainment Tonight with Nancy O'Dell. She's, uh, she was interviewing uh, Oprah in advance of Oprah's release of her new book called One Thing I Know For Sure, which is a collection of all these celebrities talking about the thing they know for sure. So right before that book was released, she was interviewed by Entertainment Tonight, and they asked her where she heard this in the first place. So let's listen to this short little snippet from the interview. In 1998, Oprah was doing a live television interview with the late film critic Gene Siskel, and he asked her, tell me, what do you know for sure that has become the central question of her life? It's the title of her new book, and it's the question that we explore today. You said some of the times that brought you to your knees mm -hmm. were some of the biggest lessons in life that you learned. What I know for sure is no matter what you're going to, this too shall pass. And that all trials stands to have you look at yourself and say, who am I really? You know, I remember calling Maya Angelou one day crying, literally crying, sitting in the bathroom with the toilet seat down. I remember this and, from the book, yes. Yes, and the door is closed and I am crying to her saying, oh, I whatever, it was probably some tabloid something. And she said, say thank you right now. So. I was like, saying thank you, why am I saying thank you? Why do you say thank you when you're going through the worst of times? You say thank you because you know your faith is strong enough, your belief is strong enough, you will get to the other side, this too shall pass. Okay, we're gonna stop it there. It goes on a little bit, but you, you kind of get the idea. She hears this from film reviewer Gene Siskel. She's floored by the question, and as I was when the first time I heard it. And why are we floored? We're floored, I think, because of that last part of it. What do you know for sure? It's that little hook at the end that makes this quite a different kind of question. So, Becky, uh, when you think about the, the uh, sort of the tension or leverage in this question, what gives it that? What, is, what does this question force us to do inside when we ponder it? Well, I think that one of the things is that it asks you to do one thing. And we have a hard time, I think, especially more and more in this day and age. Um, our friend Steph, I remember we were in a meeting one time and everybody was bouncing out all these things that they said we had to get done. And she stopped everyone and said, I just want to clarify, 
a priority is just one thing. (laughs) (laughs) The definition of a priority is one thing and we can't have 20 of them. So which is it? (laughs) And I was like, I have, I literally use that all the time. Like, I think that's one of my beckonator things is when I get up in the morning, I know what my one thing is like for that day. And other things will, you know, once that one thing is done, then I get to the next one thing, but I don't get confused about the one thing. So it's really hard though to do that. And I think in our society, we're taught to have lots of things, right? And so this is like this laser focus that all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, just one? Okay. Well, then now it's becoming more clear to me that one thing. Let me jump on top of that too, that, um, So I'm creating resources all the time that have discussion questions in them. I do it constantly. It's part of my job. And there is an art form to asking good questions. And when you get good at asking good questions, one thing you start to realize is what bad questions are. They start to become more apparent. One aspect of a bad question is when you ask for multiple answers. It cloaks itself, but you can always tell a bad question when you're asking people to consider or answer more than one thing in the question. And that's where they get bogged down. They need more information. I forgot what you asked me. What is it we're really out talking about here? Those are the kinds of questions, the answers you get back. And it's because they don't do what you're saying. They don't prioritize and narrow it down to one thing. What do you think about the part of that question when it says one thing you know for sure? So what, what role does the for sure play? So I think the for sure play it weeds out the feelings, right? Like when, so when we're going through a, a, a situation, we may have all these like emotions we're attaching to it or like other people's opinions that we're attaching to it or past things that have happened to us that we're attaching to it. I feel like the for sure part of it kind of obliterates those things and then almost like isolates the one thing that you know for sure. And that kind of clarity I mean, obviously, if you've watched Oprah and seen her ask this question to celebrities, a lot of times that question ends up being upending to them. It's, it reveals something that maybe they didn't see or that they didn't see as clearly before. And even, even an interesting thing, when you said that, I, I thought when I've watched her ask this question or I've read how people have responded to it, it also accesses the spiritual part of that person very often because it's the for sure part where you start to get down to the foundational level of what you really, really know in your life. And that almost always taps into whatever is spiritual about that person. Mm -hmm. So I just love that little hook at the end, the for sure part really, I think is the key to the whole question. It's such a challenge. So in the, in the Jesus centered life, I did a little bit of a rabbit trail research path on how the red letters in a Bible got to be the red letters. You know, if you have Mm -hmm. a Bible where Jesus's words are highlighted in red, it wasn't always that way. (laughs) The Bible didn't get first printed with Jesus's words in red. It was, it actually happened not that long ago, about a century ago. I could go into greater detail, but read the book. You'll see the the backstory of how the red letters came to be. But uh, it was a guy who had an idea about, giving emphasis to Jesus' words and put them, putting those words in red. And one aspect of my research into this was, believe it or not, into the power of the color red. Why do we make some things red? And it's because red has a universal uh, sort of message that carries with it, which is stop. It's not just in America that our stop signs are red. Stop signs all over the world are red. They're different shapes. They use different uh, language, but they're all red (laughs) because human beings stop when they see red. It's an emotional communicator, that color. And so I think it's fascinating to think about Jesus's words being in red, Jesus himself being in red, when we think about let's stop, slow down, pay attention to anything that's red. So I just imagine the Oprah question as being a red question. (laughs) It's colored red. It makes us slow down and consider Jesus more intentionally. So, and I mentioned that I think that the the Oprah question can be sort of lived out in every aspect of our life. And here's some of the ways in the book that I list that this can help us in everyday life. So this question, the what's one thing I know for sure about Jesus, can help us reconcile the story of God in the Old and New Testaments. It can help us face 
tough decision or face a tough choice in life. It can uh, help us when we're trying to relate with someone who's in a crisis. It helps us when we consider how people typically treat teaching the teachings of Jesus. And what I mean by that is sometimes people will say something like, well, Jesus was a pacifist. Really? Have you, have you asked the Oprah question about that? Do we know for sure that Jesus was a pacifist? That opens up things and it kind of undermines popular mythology about Jesus when you ask that question. Or it can help you explore ways to tell others about Jesus as well, because you have a different kind of experience of him when you ask this question about him all the time. It can also help you pray for others or pray for yourself or even respond to some popular criticisms of Christianity because you're, you're always asking the question, what do I know for sure about him? So the more we ask the Oprah question, the more it just grows into a natural habit. It's like riding a bike. It becomes like breathing to us. We don't have to think about it. The question is always there in the background. So, so uh, what we want to get to is a place where we've asked the question enough that we're not even conscious we're asking it anymore, but we are. It's just reflexive. So I thought it'd be interesting, Becky, to start off with kind of a wide view here. We've talked before on the podcast about your epic two-year journey here. Now, from your perch two years out, where things are around you are a bit more stable, or maybe a lot more stable, <laughs> you have an expectation of what your next day is going to be like. You're not in constant uh, a constant state of, will I have enough money to live on, so forth. Um, your journey has been a journey out of abuse and into a new life that Jesus has called you into, and it's taken a lot of courage to walk this path. So I wonder if you could look back over these last two years in particular and think about, of all these many and varied experiences you've had, what are, first of all, some things you know for sure that maybe you didn't know for sure before? or maybe you weren't as sure of before. Let's start with that, and then we're gonna move into, well, uh, what do you know for sure about your relationship with Jesus during that stretch too? But let's start out broad and say, well, what are some things you know for sure now based on these two years of experience? And maybe you can um, just give a quick, uh, a, a quick teaser about, well, what, why, what is this two years actually? What is the two years we're referring to? Why, I, I mentioned it, but maybe you can explain that a little bit. Yeah, we're actually right at two years um, mm. next week. Exactly wow. two weeks, October 6th, I think. And I'm actually going to be on that day um, with all of my gals from More Than Me um, in Orange County for an event that we're doing there. And I'm going to be just surrounded by the women who have <laughs> become so important to me. So that's really great. It's um so the thing that I know for sure is that um, losing your home and losing all of your possessions is not the end of the world. I know that for certain. Um, I think that probably in this, like, in this fighting time, you, you know, remember, Rick probably remembers the day that I called him in tears, sobbing. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. and in tears and just had said like why do I have to leave my home and my friends and my family and my things and why would I have to lose all of this when I didn't do anything wrong and that in that honest moment that was the worst possible thing that could happen to me is that I would just lose everything and and maybe we even don't make decisions um, or take risks in our life because of that same thing you could apply that in a not so um, horrific way. Like there's lots of decisions that we make that are based on not wanting to lose the comforts of our home. And I think, um, what I've learned is that, um, home is a relative term to me. Um, and it definitely doesn't have anything to do with any possessions that I have anymore. They're very loosely held to me and easily just let go of at this point. Mm. Um, and that's very different than the way I was before. Mm. It's fascinating. I'm thinking about uh, that interview we heard a snippet of with Oprah. She goes on to say at the very end, one of the things that she knows for sure about her life is a, is a lot like what you just said. She she references um, a really dumb decision she made that she won't, she doesn't get specific about, but she just says it was it was really stupid, this decision I made, and it upset my whole life and got me in a lot of trouble. And out of that, she said, what I know for sure 
is that when you're in the moment, it feels like something's happening to me. And that's kind of what you just described too, mm -hmm. Becky. When you say, why do I have to move? It's saying, why is this happening to me? It doesn't seem fair. And on the face of it, of course, it isn't fair. But what Oprah said was, what she's learned for sure is, um, what happens to us is also for us, which I think is a profound insight that she's pulling out of that. And it only happens for us if there's an artist behind us who is, who is making sure it happens for us. Sometimes I think what Oprah is, is trying to portray is that the universe conspires to make things that happen to us actually be for us. But the universe isn't doing that. It's a person whose name is Jesus, who's an artist, who is taking the things that happen to us and transforming them so they happen for us as well. And I'm sure you've seen many examples now in these last two years of things that happened to you that now are, you can look back and say, but that happened for me as well. Mm -hmm. It was designed then to strengthen me, not in the way it was originally intended, but the way Jesus repurposed it in a way. Yeah. So that would be the next thing I would say is that out of the outcome of all of that is that we say this cliche thing like, well, God's, God's with you in this time. Like, you know, believe it. And, and I think we, we hold to that, like, like a, you know, like a gentle, like, you know, something to hold on to, but it's, it's not, it doesn't feel very solid. Um, but what I know for sure is that even when horribly bad things are happening to you and you don't know about them, he's working in the background for you. Like he is, he is actually there with you. He sees it all and he's orchestrating what's best for you out of it. Um, and he's there 100%. <laughs> There's we, no doubt in my mind. And when, we, and when we say we know this for sure, of course, in the knowing for sure, there's still faith involved in this because the next thing over the hill that is going to be challenging, you're going to have, and I will have in the background of my own life, this certainty that I know for sure the heart of Jesus I just don't know how this one's going to turn out. I don't know which direction this is going to go. So I'm confident in his heart hovering over the situation, but I'm not confident in what direction it's going to take. Um, so the, uh, knowing for sure doesn't mean that there's no faith required <laughs> to live our life. Uh, what we're really saying we know for sure is in these kinds of circumstances is we know something's sure about the heart of Jesus and the ultimate outcome of that. And I, I thought before we get to uh, maybe some things that you feel like you know for sure about Jesus that you were less sure about before, before we get to that, um, I wonder if there's some things that you know for sure about yourself that you didn't know so much before. So I have mentioned this before, but I definitely know where my cliff is and I've been over it. Um, and so that, that's something that I think if you're someone who pushes to the limit, like I do on a regular basis, <laughs> um, you may get to a point at some point where you're like, maybe I don't have a cliff. <laughs> I have a cliff and I went over it. <laughs> I'm capable of doing that. Never want to go back there. Um, and so I, I, you know, we do as humans, like we, there is enough, like there gets to a point where there's enough. And I think that's where the Holy Spirit and the people in your life have to just come around you and like, and get you through that. Um, but I also know for sure that I am strong enough. Um, I am strong enough <laughs> to do hard things and that there's a, there's been grit that's been built in me over and over again. And that a, every painful part of my story, um, not just this one, but from my childhood and all of it has has been like training ground. Um, and I'm ready for, I'm ready. One year ago, I was sitting thinking, I wonder if I'll ever find that person again. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that strong person will ever emerge. And I, I think going into February, I still was, I still didn't know if she would ever come back. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it was not an instantaneous thing. And there was a lot of, 
you know, there was a lot more on the road that I had to say yes to even when I was not feeling like saying yes to it. Um, but I'm happy to have her back. And I know that everything she went through was for a reason. Yeah. And what's interesting about what you're saying right now too, is that, um, what I, and what I've heard you say several times before, even on this podcast is you, uh, rediscovered who you really are. You, you kind of reclaimed things that are deeply core true about yourself. And it's hard to say that if you haven't gone through something like what you've gone through, it's hard to really, uh, I think there's this kind of a certainty because when everything falls apart, you discover what remains and you're discovering now what remains of you what, what was always there, but was maybe, maybe pushed down, covered over, distracted from, you're rediscovering what was, what is truest about you in, in the, in that sense. And that is a huge thing going forward in our life. If we have a kind of a bedrock discovery about who we are, part of this transitions for me into the, this whole question of what do we know for sure about in our relationship with Jesus well, when I think about this, a foundation stone underneath my feet is that I know for sure that I resonate with Peter when Jesus asks his disciples after all the crowds have left because they're offended by him telling them that they have to eat his body and drink his blood to have any part of him. And so all the crowds leave. And he asked his disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter, Peter's response is, where else would we go? Where else would I go? Only you have words of life and truth. So I deeply resonate with the reason that that's my favorite chapter of the Bible and my favorite line in the Bible is that I have a deep resonance with that in my soul. When I say to Jesus, where else would I go? The same way Peter did. I'm not saying I got this whole life thing figured out. I think I know what my next turn in the road is. I think how this, I know this, how this is going to turn out. I'm saying none of that. I'm saying at a bedrock level, I don't know what's going to happen next. I just know I can't leave you. Whatever comes, I'm, it's like in um, Edgar Allan Poe's um, uh, uh, original horror story, um, the, oh, it's slipping my mind what it's called right now, The Maelstrom, mm -hmm. Descent into the Maelstrom is what it's called. Um, it's about three fishermen brothers who, uh, fish near the mouth of a huge ocean whirlpool because no one else will go near that. And so they catch a lot of fish there. And one time they go out, the, a, a strong wind pushes them into the mouth of the maelstrom. And then they can't get their ship out of the flow of that. And they're going to die because their boat is going to be sucked down into this whirlpool. And each of the three brothers um, tries a different strategy. One just panics and he's swept overboard right away. Another one ties himself to a mast and the mast breaks and he's swept overboard. And the third brother studies the maelstrom and he, he has an idea. He, re he sees that stuff that swept off the boat falls down into the gaping hole of this whirlpool. But if it's buoyant, it floats back up to the top. And he, th he has an idea. He thinks, if I tie myself onto one of these casks that's sitting here on the deck, and throw myself overboard, I bet that thing will bob back up to the surface and it will rescue me. And that's what he does. He ties himself to the cask. And I think that's what Peter is saying in that moment. I'm tying myself to you, Jesus. You are my only rescue. And I deeply resonate with that. I know that's for sure that that is true about me and true about my relationship with Jesus. Is there something that you think of, Becky, that, that through this two-year period, um, you're, you're more sure of in your relationship with Jesus or more sure about him in some way? Yeah, I am most definitely sure that um, Jesus cares less about my faults or like fixing them uh, than I do. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by that? I mean, I just... Um, I, it, it's so clear to me that like the work that I try to do on my own self is behavior modification and that the work that he tries to do is heart modification. Mm. 
not even modification, like heart, heart capturing and that he, he understands that the, the behavior will follow the heart. <laughs> and so, um, I think that that's been just like such a huge part of my journey over the last year is just seeing like the transformation in my own heart towards circumstances and people and, um, that, uh, how much more he is interested in just like capturing their love and capturing, um, that intimate relationship and then just letting that the rest flow out of that. Um, I think I used to use those words, but I still went back to the behavior modification, um, systems because they just like seemed so much more logical. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Like, it's the difference it's a difference between focusing on the root of the tree mm -hmm. and the health of the tree so that it produces good fruit and fixating on the branches where the fruit actually appears we can get lulled into thinking that where our focus should be is on the branches where the fruit appears but actually the thing that's producing that is the is the roots of the tree if the roots are healthy it's going to produce good fruit and um that's why Jesus uses so many botanical metaphors, by the way. He's trying to show us in, the, in our natural created world that we know a healthy tree has healthy roots. So pay attention to those. Because if you get that right, you'll get good fruit and good leaves and a strong, sturdy tree that can survive a hurricane. Um, and if you miss that point, then that tree it may look strong, but it'll be toppled. So yeah, that's so good. So I, I think I'd like to transition into... Um, uh, kind of a simple way of thinking about when you're reading scripture, what does it look like to ask the Oprah question, especially re relative to Jesus? Um, what does it look like to do that? In the book, I, I try a little experiment there of, uh, we take Matthew 15, and I just take a slow walk through Matthew 15, just asking the Oprah question over and over again. What do I know for sure about Jesus based on that, based on that, based on that? And I just came up with my own bulleted list of what I know for sure about Jesus just on Matthew 15. So if you want to see that list, just go pick up a copy of the Jesus Centered Life. It's, uh, it's on, let's see, it's on pages. I'll take you right to the pages. It's on pages 139 and 140 in that book. But what Becky and I are going to do now is we're going to do this with a passage we've never done this with before. I'm just going to read uh, John chapter 17. I'll read it all the way through. And as we go through it, then Becky and I are just going to pick out some things that we know for sure about Jesus just based on this one chapter. So um, John 17, by the way, is sometimes called the high priestly prayer. This is right before Jesus is, is dragged in front of the high priest and then uh, goes to trial before Pilate and then is scourged and crucified. This is really the last thing he says before all this happens. And it's his, it's his intimate prayer to his father. And he says it out loud so that his disciples can hear. That's how we have it recorded in scripture. So keep in mind, this is what Jesus is saying to his father right before the horror begins. So we'll start off here. John 17, verse one. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you've given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given to him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I've revealed to you the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you, for I've passed on to them the message you gave to me. They accepted it and know that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you've given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I'm departing from the world, and they're staying in this world. But I'm coming to you, Holy Father. You've given me your name. Now protect them. Protect them by the power of your name, 
so that they'll be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many times, many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. I've given them your word. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Well, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. And just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Oh, righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I've revealed you to them and will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them and I will be in them. There you have it. That's all of John chapter 17, um, a big chunk. So this is not a linear process. This is a messy process. When we ask the Oprah question, what do we know for sure about Jesus? We could skip all over the place, little rabbit trails, tiny little nuances, huge th themes that uh, hover over this. So Becky, wh uh, what's, what's something that jumped out to you here that, you, that answers that question, what do I know for sure about Jesus for you? Well, there's, I mean, this is such a good one. Um, I, as I was making notes, I was thinking of the pierced Bible, but the one that has all of the teenagers like yes. notes. And yeah, I let me just, let me just say something a little bit about that. So people know what that is. We, our team took a Bible created by the, the, the people who did the NIV translation. Um, they're called Biblica. They have a heart for wanting people to read and consume scripture and come close to Jesus because of it. So they have a reoriented version of the New Testament that puts the Gospels and all of the letters and all of the books in sort of chronological order or in thematic order, like all of the things that Luke wrote, for instance, are grouped together in this New Testament. And then what we did is we went out and asked about a dozen teenagers to send us their Bibles that have markings and notes and all kinds of stuff underlining and highlighting in them. And we transferred all of their stuff into our pierced Bible so that as you're reading it, you can see these running comments and underlines and highlights and all kinds of stuff that young people around the, around the world had put into their own Bibles. And we transferred it into there along with, uh, we had uh, about a dozen teenage illustrators illustrate the chapter, uh, a chapter illustration I mean, a book illustration for each book of the New Testament. So that's what pierced is. Sorry for that long rabbit trail. But you were about to say, Becky. Well, I was just, my notes, like I was kind of picturing them, how they were in the pierced Bible. Like they would put things like knowing God equals eternal life. <laughs> and these, you know, teenagers, they, they just put it very simply. This is what it says, obviously. Um, but, you know, we don't belong to the enemy. That's one mm. thing. Like, um, he said, like, they don't belong to the enemy. We don't, I think we sometimes get tricked into thinking that, that we do, but we don't. Um, oh, we got to stop there for a second. I, I love that. Um, so what we're answering here is what do we know for sure about Jesus? And what we know for sure is he does not, he knows that we don't belong to the enemy. So no matter what internal conversation we have going on, we belong to him. Yeah. We know for sure that's what he believes and what he, he knows is real. It's good. Um, he also, uh, you know, it, it's confirmed here that Jesus is the son of God. Mm. He calls him father and he talks to him as a father. He also, 
um, confirms here that God gave Jesus the authority over us and everything on earth. Um, and also Jesus intercedes on our behalf for our protection. He mm. goes to God and he intercedes for us and prays for our protection and asks for that. He's a fighter. Yeah. It's interesting. I'll see if I can pull this up real quick. Um, in our, uh, in our small group this Tuesday, at the very end, it was kind of an intense small group. We were focusing on the end times. <laughs> so there was a lot of, uh, it, it was one of the most difficult um, small groups I've ever led just as far as preparation for it because it's so complicated. But it's easy to get sidetracked um, by all of the fireworks and the, uh, the horrific imagery of the end times and all of the scary stuff that goes along with that. And uh, I thought it was really important to close the evening by having them all in a circle, just close their eyes. And I spoke a benediction over them. And the benediction I spoke over them was simply a condensed bulleted list of how Jesus describes them uh, born out of what, what we know is true from scripture. And um, one of them on that bulleted list, and maybe I'll post this bulleted list on this podcast. So you'll have it as well. I titled it, how Jesus describes us, but one of those bullets was, I've fought for you to release you from captivity and invite you into freedom. And I have to say, as I was speaking out these truths to these kids with their eyes closed, um, some of them just started crying because when you start to embrace and accept what you just said, Becky, one thing that's fundamental that's for sure about Jesus is he is right now fighting for you and he's fighting for me. And when he fights, he fights. He's ferocious. He won't give up. And he's not going to be swayed by anything that we would normally ourselves be afraid of because he's not afraid. He's not afraid to get into the muck and he's not afraid to keep fighting and he doesn't run out of energy. <laughs> so, that's helpful to know for sure about Jesus, that no matter how things look, he's a fighter and he's going to fight on our behalf. And we see that not just here in John 17, but many other places in the Gospels. One of the things that I saw um, here was this whole idea of unity that he comes back to over and over again. I was kind of startled as I read through the whole thing at once, how many times he comes back to this thing about there and me and I'm in you and I want them to have the same kind of unity we have. And I realized, oh, it was like a light bulb going off over my head. The unity he's talking about is not sameness of belief or sameness of any kind. The unity is a unity around our passion for him, that he wants us to be as passionate about his father as he is. He speaks so affectionately about his father in this prayer so not not just respectfully just he's delighted in his father he can't say enough about the beauty he sees in his father he wants to step aside so others can see the beauty of his father um, he absolutely loves his father and he that's the kind of unity he wants to bring amongst us that we would be unified by that and i, I was thinking about this uh, earlier today we were last year at this time i was in kenya um, my first time in Africa, and it's such a radically different culture to be in Nairobi, for instance. Uh, it took a while for me to get used to it, but we were around a lot of Kenyan ministry people. And somebody pointed out the other day, um, it was easy to be around those people. We didn't really feel the huge cultural difference because what tied us together is we loved Jesus. And that just overshadowed all of these obvious differences between us. We felt like we had this kindredness amongst us, even though our lifestyle and our life circumstances were radically different. That was wiped away by the, the tie that we had in our passion for Jesus. So I see that in when Jesus talks about I and you, you and me, um, all of this unity that he's praying for is a unity around our shared passion. Anything else that you picked out from this, Becky Nader, that stuck out to you that you know for sure about Jesus from this? Other than the six things that I already said? 
Yeah, those. Yeah, if that's if that's the end of your list, that's a pretty. That's darn the good end one. of my list. Oh, excellent. So um, the other thing that I I picked out about here is that he's not shy about this whole idea of bringing glory to his father, and also glory to himself. And we, we usually think of that as like, ooh, that doesn't sound Prideful, very good. arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> but what he's really, what I pick up, what I know for sure about Jesus is that he loves beauty when he sees it. He loves beauty when he sees it in his father, when he sees it in his followers, and when he sees it in himself. He loves beauty, which is another way of saying truth. So when he sees the truth, it brings glory. There's a, there's a glorious aspect to something that is fund, fundamentally true. And so I see that as something that's uh, for sure about Jesus. Um, and then the last thing that I picked out um, was this whole issue of um, don't take them out of the world, you know, just as you sent me into the world. He's, he, what we know for sure about Jesus is he does not want us to compartmentalize, compartmentalize ourselves away from the world. He does not like that, and it's not his mission, and therefore it's not our mission. We have to get out into the world just as he was out into the world. So if you think about the, the encounters, the, the difficult um, uh, struggles that he had to face with people and difficult situations he entered into, you know, the, the legion of demons coming down out of the graves at him, and he stands his ground and commands the demons to leave, all of these scary things that Jesus plunges himself into, he's saying, that's where I need to be, out there where all that stuff is happening, and that's where I want my followers to. So we know for sure about Jesus that he is in the world, and he expects us to be in the world too. So that's a good little um, sampler there from just one chapter, John 17, and that's what it looks like to ask the Oprah question. What do we know for sure about Jesus? Do this whenever you read. You can even do this when you're reading elsewhere, outside of the Gospels in the Bible. In the Old Testament, for instance, you can go through a chunk of something and say, based on what I'm reading here, what do I know for sure about Jesus from this? Um, what do I know for sure that Jesus um, values, supports, will fight for? You can ask it anywhere you are in the Bible. So um, this is something, again, that uh, Becky and I have kind of listed some things as we've gone through this, and you can do it that way, but the, the bigger issue is that creating sort of that permanent filter inside. So whenever you read anything about him, you're lurking in the background is the question. What do, what do I know for sure about him here? It causes you to see red, slow down, stop, consider for just a moment, what do I know for sure? So um, I was thinking about this today that um, – my, my daughter yesterday, my younger daughter, Emma, uh, at the dinner table when we were praying before our meal, she, she asked out loud something of God. And then as soon as she, it came out of her mouth, she stopped and said, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And I said, why? And she said, well, God always gives you the opposite of what you asked for. And <laughs> this was so funny. So my wife and I are looking at her saying, what? And, but it was also very familiar. Like I remember when I was younger, trying to make sense of the world, and sometimes you'd ask God for something, and then it seemed like the very next day you got the opposite of that. So what's going on there? What, how do you explain God's behavior? And that's what she was saying. She was treating prayer almost like a spell that you have to get right, you know? And, and um, I, I mean, it's funny, but it's also, it's just a familiar belief that grows out of our life experience, but it's not true. And the only way you can expose that is not true is by getting a closer, more intimate experience, intimate experience of Jesus. He's the one that eradicates those myths. So asking the Oprah question can help dispel things like that. So that's what we did around the table. We, we just said, we just started asking your questions like, well, why do you think that, that, that this, this formula you have inside, that if you ask for something, God will give you the opposite. Why do you think that? What's the evidence for that? Do you see Jesus doing that with people? They ask him one thing. Um, Jesus himself said, if you ask, I, I, he said, uh, you have a good father. If you, ask, if, if you ask for a flower, he's not going to give you a snake. 
You know, <laughs> he's not an idiot. Um, he's not going to give you what you don't want. So we just started talking about that and we slow down and, and ask ourselves, what do we know for sure about, what do we know for sure about Jesus? So the more we pause in response to that red stop sign of the Oprah question, um, then the more we abide in Jesus and the more we abide in Jesus, we get intimacy with him. We get to drink his living water. We get to eat and drink his blood. We gain his strength and perseverance to live the life he's called us to live. Any last thoughts, Becky Nader, about um, the whole role of this question, why it's valuable to do in our lives? But it I think this like. is a really valuable way to read the Bible because a lot of times we get a lot of, we mostly get, actually, I think studies say that we mostly get the Bible from, um, from sermons, whether that's like a pastor, or like you're listening to a podcast or whatever it is that you're doing. Like we mostly get the Bible, um, you know, read to us through somebody else reading it to us. And I think that the study said that a pastor in his lifetime usually only teaches about 10% of the entire Bible. And so, um, and so we end up like coloring a lot of scripture, like, or I'll even hear people quote something and they think it's scripture, but it's not, <laughs> it's like someone's antidote about scripture and they don't know the difference. So I think just even reading the Bible, like yourself and a, like going through any passage and just saying, what do I know for sure about Jesus based on what I'm reading here, whether that's the Psalms or, um, or whether that's actually any of the red letter, um, portions of the Bible there's still a lot to learn about who Jesus is um, from the whole thing. I love that point. I really do. It's, it's, it's also taking responsibility by being, getting everything firsthand as well. At some point, our maturity as disciples has to transition from dependence on someone else delivering the truth to us to the intimate relationship with Jesus where he is our rabbi. He's the rabbi inside helping us to understand his heart. I love that. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can check out Jesus-Centered Life and the Jesus-Centered Bible and the other things we've talked about um, uh, on links on the, on the episode page. So that's paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. You're looking for season four, episode 38. And that's where you can find out uh, all about previous episodes, too. If you're new to the podcast, um, it'd be hard to catch up after 150-some episodes, but you can start somewhere. Just plunk yourself down somewhere if you'd like to see what, where the, the path has led along the way in the last four years. Please do. Uh, again, this is uh, the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. Uh, it's produced by Lifetree. You could subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play. And we'll talk to you again next week and maybe in a couple of weeks. Becky Nader will have an open window to be on here again. Can't wait for that. See you soon. Bye. Bye.